0: Welcome to All About Amadovar, an introduction to loving the films of Petra Amadovar. I'm Ingu King, a critic at The Hollywood Reporter. Always with me is the pain in my side, Slate podcast producer, Daniel Schrader. Hey, Ingu. <laughs> I guess that makes our guest today this podcast's glory. <laughs> Alonzo Duraldi is the film editor at The Wrap and the host of almost as many movie podcasts as Almodovar has made movies, (laughs) Linoleum Knife, Who Shot Ya?, Breakfast All Day, and the Film and a Movie podcast, which is actually one of the inspirations for this podcast because Alonzo invited me on to talk about All About My Mother and All About E for an episode. And from there, I decided I had to revisit as many of his movies as possible. Hi Alonzo.
1: Hi. I'm the film reviews editor, just to be clear. I'm oh, sure sorry. somebody is the film editor and I don't want them coming after me, so, you know.
0: I will make sure <laughs> that we take out your objection and that they will come after you.
1: <laughs> oh, excellent. I look forward to. It. Uh, thanks for having me. This is such a fun project. I, I I frankly, this is like I'm if nothing else I'm mad I didn't think of this idea for a podcast first because I don't do nearly <laughs> enough of them.
2: Yeah, give us one idea, Alonzo. We get at least please, just one. <laughs>
1: uh no this is this has been quite the ride and um yeah the you, you guys really you know picked an amazing filmography to dig through there's so many uh directions and and offshoots and uh yeah you know he's he's my favorite living filmmaker and and i think uh, by now y'all are as qualified as anybody to know exactly why that is
2: yeah and for all of the different directions they go and they all seem to come back to the same place
1: also true
0: do you want to talk to us a little bit about your own relationship with amadovar yeah, I,
1: um, you know, I, I was in college in the 80s when his movies were starting to surface in the U.S., but uh, I was living in Nashville, Tennessee and didn't have a lot of access to them. And then it happened that uh, the uh, Christmas of 88, New Year's 89, um, I was in Spain I, where my, my parents were born there Um you know, they they emigrated to the U.S. in the fifties, and I'm the youngest of seven. We were all born in the U.S., but I still have. They were the only ones from their respective families to emigrate. So my aunts, my uncles, my cousins are all back in Spain. So every so often we go. And um, I had an afternoon to myself, which is a rare thing when you are, when you have a large family like me and there's all this group activity going on. And I uh, went to a theater to see Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and it had been playing for you know months at that point packed. I got the last seat, like on the second row, way on the side. I had never seen a Spanish movie without English subtitles. And I speak, I quote unquote, speak Spanish. You know, I, I always say I defend myself on a solid fourth grade level, but, uh, <laughs> I, but I, I got through the movie and except for not knowing the word for eye drops, I followed the whole thing and loved it. Uh, and then it came to the States a few months later and I, I, I took friends to see it again. And And then, you know, that's when I really started having access to – I'd moved to Dallas at that point, so I had access to good video stores that had, you know, his movies on VHS. So I started working backwards and getting into those films. And then, you know, after Women on the Verge, pretty much every time a new one of his movies came out, it was an event. And so uh, as somebody who is very sort of steeped in Spanish culture and queer culture and cinema culture, you know, he is like – you know, I think everybody has that artist where you feel like, Oh God, are you reading my diary? What is going on? (laughs) That's a totally what I would think about X, Y, or Z. So I have that feeling with his movies where it, it, Feels like he's, he's speaking for me, to me, about me. He's not, but, you know, it, 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 that's the feeling nonetheless. Um, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to interview him a handful of times and present him some awards at, at LA Film Critics. So uh, I think we have we have reached a point where if he sees me in a room, he kind of knows who I am. But I'm not going to push it any further than that as far as, like, you know, what our personal relationship is like.
2: I mean, I nice. don't know how much of a personal relationship
1: he has with anyone but himself, but <laughs> so true. But I you know what? I bet he gives great
0: Christmas presents. Oh, yes. But they're all like the way that like I imagine them is like fake Almodovar movie posters. <laughs> like the one here for Sabor. <laughs> Oh, or what love, a beautiful movie poster. Oh, that's a great
1: one. Oh, as long, maybe he just gives everybody that Dolce & Gabbana limited edition toaster that is in this movie. That I was watching it last <laughs> night with that. Dave, and he clocked it immediately.
2: What a great <laughs> toaster. I mean, I want everything in that apartment. It's just the best apartment.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: Even the Pokemon lamp?
2: Oh, yeah. Love the Pokemon lamp. <laughs> I think it's maybe my favorite
1: apartment of his yet. The Those yes. sliding glass doors to the kitchen with the white rectangles? Oh, yeah.
0: It's actually funny you say that because that apartment in Pain and Glory is intensely modeled after Almodovar's own apartment. And Antonio Banderas plays an almodovar Sanin to such a degree that the actor is wearing some of the director's clothes and even shoes in this role.
2: Clothes and shoes, which I'm sure Almodovar never washed again.
0: (laughs) So today... We're discussing Pedro Amadovar's most recent movie as of recording this podcast, 2019's Pain and Glory. I always knew we would end the podcast with an episode dedicated to this movie, not just because it's his latest one, but because it feels like the story that the director has been working toward making for the last 40 years. Uh, I told Daniel at the start of this podcast that he was not allowed to watch Pain and Glory until the very end of the podcast because I am a control freak. <laughs> and also because it's the kind of autobiographical work that has so many echoes and allusions to his life and his past work that your experience is just going to be richer the more you know about Amadovar. Pain and Glory stars Almodovar's career-long male muse, Antonio Banderas, who plays Salvador Mayo, a director with writer's block who is heavily based on Almodovar himself. The film is Banderas's seventh with Almodovar, and the actor delivers a masterful performance that got him a Best Actor Oscar nomination and a Best Actor win at Cannes. Alonso may disagree with me, but I would argue that Pain and Glory also represents an artistic comeback for Almodovar, who had a relatively creatively fallow period after 2006's there, which was followed by Broken Embraces, The Skin I Live In, I'm So Excited, and Julieta. Like many of Almodovar's later films, it's a narratively complex work in which Almodovar explores how an adult came to be who they are. And in this case, that adult is himself. So, Daniel, what happens in the extremely summarizable Pain and Glory?
2: (laughs) Well, um, so uh, the film opens on a young boy at the river with four washerwomen, one of them being his mother, played by Penelope Cruz, and swiftly jump to a shot of that young boy as an old man, Antonio Banderas, in a pool. Much of the film moves between his childhood featuring Penelope Cruz and current day, where he's dealing with all the aches and pains of old age. After getting out of the pool, he runs into Zulema, played by Cecilia Roth, an actress he worked with in the past, who asks how he's doing and mentions Alberto Crespo, played by... Alonso, can you help me out
1: here? Uh, Yeah, it's uh, Asier Echeandia, And I I speak Castilian, so I may well have butchered that name as well. Great. Well, make sure they come after you and not me. (laughs) Everyone's (laughs) after me.
2: Alberto is an actor who starred in one of Salvador's most famous works, Sabor, before having a 32-year falling out and he and Alberto reconnect because the cinematech has remastered Sabor and wants the two to present a screening of it. While at Alberto's home, Salvador decides to indulge for the first time in heroin. They develop a new drug-fueled friendship, and after blowing the premiere off, part ways again because Salvador can't help being dramatic. To repair things and get connected to Alberto's heroin dealer, Salvo offers to let Alberto perform Adicción, a short story he's written about his past. During one of the performances of Addicción, Salvador's former lover Federico wanders into the theater by chance to watch the monologue, a recounting of his and Salvador's early years and the difficulty Salvador had dealing with Federico's heroin addiction. After the show, he appears at Salvador's doorstep and the two have a heartbreaking conversation where Salvador learns of Federico's family, but the two part ways as friends with a passionate kiss and a gentle grope. Once Federico leaves, Salvador gives up the heroin and decides to take control of the chronic pain plaguing him, calling his faithful assistant Mercedes, played by Nora Navas, to book a doctor's appointment. Or a series of them, actually. While dealing with the doctors, he recalls his mother's final days and reminisces on their last few conversations. Throughout the film, we glimpse flashbacks to Salvo's childhood, seeing him and his mother move into a catacomb style home, his refusal to become a priest and his passion for learning and teaching when he, as a nine year old, starts teaching math and writing to Eduardo, a local man who trades the lessons for work around the cave home.
0: And we should know is maybe around 20 years old. He's like a newlywed in the town.
2: His past and present finally merge when his older self finds a photo of a painting of him as a child painted by Eduardo Eduardo, on the day of Salvo's personal sexual awakening, where he witnessed Eduardo in the nude. He and Mercedes drive out to the gallery that has the painting, which he purchases, and where he finds a years-old letter written on the back to him from Eduardo, which continues to inspire him to make his next film, El Primer Deseo.
0: So (laughs) this sounds really bad, but the filmmaker I kept thinking about while watching Pain and Glory was actually Woody Allen because Woody Allen is someone who cannot ever get out of their own head and then sort of gives you these like visions of diminishing returns and Amadover similarly Uh, cannot get out of his own head and yet it's sort of able to create this thing that feels new and yet really familiar at the same time Um, I don't need to insult Woody Allen in order to praise Amadovar, Amadovar stands on his own but that was sort of like there's so much in this movie that's sort of what we've seen before and yet there's something about this movie where all of these elements sort of feel fresh again
1: well, you know, I, I think in the same way that he had to get the flower of my secret out of his system in a way to do all about my mother, I, I sort of feel like Broken Embraces was the warm-up Ugh. to what he winds up doing here. I I, I will disagree that the, that the entire period was fallow. I think that uh, Skin I Live In and Julieta are both great films and have a lot <laughs> going on that are really fascinating. Uh, yeah, obviously, it's very easy to pick on I'm So Excited, which as the movie you want to make after the skin I live in, I totally get it. Uh, and and I personally am not in love with Broken Embraces, but I think that it does set him on a path of looking at his own career and looking at his own life story. Uh, and I think he's able to do that much more directly, more honestly here. Uh, but you start getting that, that, you know, in the same way that, like I said, with uh, Flower of My Secret sort of sets up some of the sort of like, woman's picture melodrama ideas that all about my mother is going to explore more directly and more effectively uh i think i think broken embraces is giving him a warm-up to really dig into his own life and his own you know his life in in and of and through his work
0: can you uh talk a little bit about what specifically in broken embraces for people who haven't seen it
1: well yeah, Broken Up Braces is is a it's about a filmmaker who gets involved with an actress who's played by Penelope Cruz. A uh, bad who, actress. Right. And she is involved with like this sort of gangster type who's underwriting the movie, but then after the director and the actress fall in love, the gangster Rather than shelve the movie, like sabotages it and like they, they edit together like alternate takes and they, they just, they screw it all up in post so the movie becomes a flop. But the filmmaker eventually tries to sort of, you know, reconstruct the movie the way it was supposed to be as a tribute to her. Uh, and the movie that Penelope Cruz is making in, Broken Embraces is very clearly supposed to be uh, uh, Women on the Verge of a nervous Breakdown down to like set and costume, you know, choices that are being repeated. So, like, I don't know specifically if we can say which movie Sabor is supposed to be because we don't really see any footage from it. We just see a really cool and evocative poster that it has, but it is very much... When I interviewed Almodovar about this movie, and I I said, so this is about a blocked filmmaker, like what week was that that you felt blocked? Because you're like really prolific. And he basically said that this is a movie about his fear. His fear is reaching a point where either mentally or physically he wouldn't be able to make movies. And making movies is what his entire life is about. He says, other people have birthdays. I have movies. I think of everything in my life versus like, what was I making then? What was I working on then? What was I putting together? You know, those are the stages of his life as he looks at them, as he looks back, you know, at his own existence. So, The idea of not being able to do the thing that gives his life meaning is such a a terror for him that he sort of had to expiate that fear through making a story about somebody very much like him undergoing that experience. He said at one point I brought up, you know, uh, you you guys know John Huston's last film, The Dead, the adaptation of a James Joyce story. It's a lovely film. And he made the film literally like in a wheelchair connected to, you know, like, I don't know how many IVs or monitors. What is this? Tie me up, tie me down? <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, you know, to like whispering instructions into a microphone that were then being boomed out to the audience, like to to the crew rather. Like he was, uh, he literally died like days after the shoot was done. And, and he said, yeah, at one point I almost had an image of John Huston in his wheelchair directing the dead. Like that was such a powerful image for me. And so that's what he's working through here, the idea of like, if filmmaking is your life and you can't make films, then what life do you have?
2: I think like bringing up Broken Embraces in this conversation is actually really interesting because while it isn't a movie we covered for this uh, podcast, it is certainly one that Ingo and I watched. And um, in that movie, we have a filmmaker getting to remake a movie that he made so many years ago and fix it, whereas in this movie he is appreciating a film of his own that he didn't before.
1: True. That he hadn't watched in decades and then suddenly has
2: a new perspective on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cecilia Roth has that great line of something like, uh, his performance never changed. You did. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah which I love Cecilia Roth just as this like pop-up part at the beginning of the movie because she's clearly a Carmen Maurer stand-in saying things like, I just take anything I'm offered and stuff like that. Where <laughs> it's, like He's casually dragging all
1: of his friends in this movie and it's so great to see. Which then also leads to the, the mother's great line at the end of like, yeah, my neighbors are tired of being in your movies, <laughs> being referenced, like leave them out of this. I don't like it
2: when you get that storytelling look. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> take that narrator well, that... look off your face
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then you can sort of like see antonio banderas's eyes change because he like when he was leaning in for that extra detail that she was going to give up he gets this like extreme wolfish gleam in his eye and then when he's told off by his mother and then he sort of like has to like back down but you can see the frustration in his eyes god i love this performance so much
2: Antonio Banderas gives, like, one of the best performances of his career, certainly in this. And it having seen so many of his other Almodovar films before this, it's so much fun to see young Antonio, like, peek through at moments. Like, when he and Alberto are doing drugs, like snorting coke right before, uh, like, while they're on speakerphone. Uh, he has this, <laughs> like, look of glee that's just such a, like, young, childish Uh, Antonio look that was so nice to be reminded of in such an old face.
0: It's also just like a really physical performance because he has to be sort of infirm this whole time, but also still kind of like be hot. Um.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Antonio will never not be hot. I was going to say that's that's beyond his his ken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, there are things that are beyond you, Antonio Banderas.
1: (laughs) So much of this really is, though, about aging and infirmity in a way that I think it feels to me like it that's been something of a taboo subject for movies. Movies are so much about you know young, vital people you know traipsing about. And if they are about old people, then it's always about like them being at death's door essentially. and And this is a movie about that part in between. And I remember it was interesting because, you know, this came out around the same time as The Irishman, which also I thought was a movie that kind of dealt with just, you know, the the failing of the body and the failing of, you know, and, and looking back at a life with regret. And, you know, uh, clearly here it's a, it's a much happier look back at, at his life. But, you know, I'll tell you, I, I'm in my 50s. And when I see, you know, Banderas put a pillow on the ground to to get something off the floor, I'm like, yep. I feel you, I've been there you know and, and and that's not a feeling I get a lot in movies when it comes to issues like this that they feel so immediate to the sort of just quotidian existence of uh, you know so many people
2: Yeah I mean the opening sequence of um what would you even call that with all of the like um imagery of the body it feel like oh. I was go- I was at like a trippy bodies exhibit or something <laughs> Yeah um, that's
1: that's his first sort of animated th- sequence outside of credits in his career. And he goes, that's another thing I asked him about when we talked about it. And and, and he was like, well, I didn't want to just have this litany, this list of, you know, ailments and problems. And so I basically just wrote the speech, gave it to this animator that I knew. And then, you know, Alberto Iglesias did the music for it. And it just, you know, it came together as something that was visually captivating, but then at the same time would get, convey necessary information to the audience. It, it made me
2: both think that, A, oh, God, I'm 31. My body's breaking down, isn't it? And B, of course, Pedro's a hypochondriac.
1: <laughs> it does scan. Uh, I mean, you know, I think he is somebody who lives inside his own head a lot. And so that probably is part and parcel of what that experience, you know, results in. Uh, but I love how, it, it, in the same way that, you know, he uses all that sort of 1960s, fashion magazine imagery in the opening credits of Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, so much of the body stuff in this sequence is so, like, old medical textbook. You know, like, if anything, a- at its most modern, it's, it feels like going through, like, one of those early Disney, you know, journey through the human body kind That's of That's exactly thing, what so. it is, yeah. Yeah. It's not until the end when he actually starts going to the doctors, like, he gets his CAT scan where you see those really contemporary wall size blow-ups of, you know, like joints and cellular, you know, formations or whatever that feel very contemporary. But everything in that montage feels very like, you know, ye old anatomy book.
0: It's almost the worst version of like the magic school bus where like you go inside <laughs> his own body. I did like the fact that, I mean, there's so many, we talk about movie tropes. There are so many annoying movies about like how mental illness Or even just suffering is this stimulus toward art. And it was so refreshing to have this version of like a director who was like, you know what, I'm suffering and therefore I'm not working. And that's sort of like the logical sequence of things. I don't know what you expect.
2: Well, I think that a lot of... And this is... We're definitely going to get into this more deeply. But I think that that... One of the differences of pain here is that he... He's so caught up in physical pain and like his own like aching and ailments that he's forgotten like it's or it seems it feels like he's forgotten much of the emotional ache that has driven a lot of his work and that through his uh, reconnection with Federico and his remembrance of his sexual awakening, he's reminded of both the thrill and joy of what like drove him to make these works all about desire but also the pain that drove him to make them as well
1: i was saying and then also resuscitating you know the addiction story i think also gives him that window where it's like he he says this thing i wrote it to forget it you know like as though he were he were expurgating that from his body but but knowing that it's being out there even even though he hasn't gone to see it performed all of that feeds into the 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 narrative inside his head of oh yes my youth oh yes the movies i'm kind of surprised that we don't get a scene of the of young salvador watching a movie outside like it's described so evocatively but he, they never show it in the film and that just seems like it would have been a no-brainer to include and maybe he didn't have to because it's described so evocatively but that just it felt like a moment where you know we do get to see the clips of the kinds of movies he would have been watching then but it i don't know i i i wonder, I, I, I didn't get to ask i wonder if that was sort of a, a conscious choice
2: yeah maybe a film with brother and sisters robert and elizabeth taylor
1: <laughs> for instance, she could be darning his socks. Yes.
0: <laughs> How beautiful was like pastoral Spain in this movie? I feel like he almost always makes it look so good. And obviously, it's much more his nostalgia for the Pueblo than what it actually looks like. But you start with this like really, really idyllic scene of like these four women like washing their laundry, you know, like at a river, like it's like the 1700s basically. And then you like get this like amazing four part choral performance that like totally spontaneously just happened while they're all like hanging up their sheets. But the one scene I couldn't get over was the Caves because I had watched this movie in the theater last year. and uh, basically, I had remembered half of this movie being Caves. And then <laughs> when I rewatched it yesterday, I was like, "Oh, you see the caves for like maybe like 10 minutes tops. But it made such a huge impression on me. <laughs> And, of course, there's, like, all of this womb imagery and also sort of, like, the idea of him, like, burgeoning, like, to become, like, the person that he is. But I, man, I don't want to live in those caves, but I want to spend a significant amount of time in them. Also, Alonso, as, like, our resident Spaniard, did you know that people living in caves in the 20th century was a thing?
1: I didn't really know about that, but I, I, it didn't shock me. Because the thing you have to remember about 20th century Spain is this was like, you know, for a, a large parts of the country, a very sort of old school kind of agrarian society. You have the civil war that breaks out in the 1930s with the fascist element winning. And then Spain is kind of on lockdown after that because they they stay out of World War II Uh, where they would have been expected to be on Hitler's side because Hitler had actually helped Franco come to power. Uh, So they don't benefit from a lot of the sort of post-war advantages that more devastated countries like France and Germany did where the U S was really coming in to help out because they were still under fascist dictatorship. Like, you know, Hitler was gone. Mussolini was gone. Franco stuck around until the seventies. So, you know, and in Madrid, obviously there, there were, you know, people were cosmopolitan and modern, but like in the really out of the way farming communities and stuff like they were, they were, talk about the Spanish hillbilly elegy like they are they are country people so yeah the the cave thing did whoa, not whoa whoa don't me. offend them don't yeah. offend them <laughs> um yeah so I I do love the 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 flashbacks in this movie the scene with the the women at the river is so great just because I think and, and and I don't know if Daniel can back me up on this one but I know for me growing up as a little gay boy uh there is something so freeing and comforting about the company of women as a little boy where mm. there is absolutely no, no one's going to throw a football at you, you know, like there is no pressure whatsoever. to and no one's going like, to find out you're gay. Exactly. It's, just, it's, it's a, it's a great place to sort of be quiet, to observe feminine energy and to feel safe uh, from, you know, uh, other parts of the world that are not going to be as, as nurturing and as comforting. So I, I love how, beautifully that's captured just in that scene with with those women and how how comfortable he feels around them like that just that just pushes a button deep in my brain that i kind of forgot i had i'm also curious
2: if if like the otherworldly or, or like the old worldly um nature of living in the caves and the feeling of it being disconnected from the larger part of the 20th century also maybe has to do with uh salvador's own lack of education even though he got educated like how he says in the opening sequence about like i never i i was never taught about like geography or all like etc until i got out into the world because they just taught me how to sing
1: right Uh, yeah exactly well he says that was that was the priests doing that it was like yeah you mm -hmm. don't need to go to those classes we you need to practice you got we have to have choir rehearsal so, uh, I mean, the, well, I mean, certainly part of that is that the Catholic Church obviously held huge sway during the Franco period. Like, they were very much co-running the show, you know, arm in arm, like Catholicism and fascism, just they really, really mix together so beautifully. Uh, And then, and in Spain, they they were, they were the two like dominant cultural forces. So, you know, I mean like, okay, so for example, you know, the whole thing with the, 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 the album that he has with the movie stars in it, you know, movies did come to Spain, but they were very often uh, censored or sometimes like, you know, the, the film adaptation of For Whom the Bell Tolls, did not open in Spain until after Franco died in the 70s uh, because it was – Until they sp- could ring the bell. Exactly. It was about the Spanish Civil <laughs> War from the side that lost. And so, you know, couldn't have that. Um, uh, you know, but so, so I, I think it, also when I when I see the, the, the kid being that obsessed with these movie stars who we may or may not have ever seen in anything – I, I another thing I relate to because I feel like very early in my life, before I even really understood what movies were or was was watching them, I was already kind of obsessed with the idea of them. Like I would, I could tell you what was showing at all the theaters near my house when I was like four years old. You know, it, it's like when the girl in the Queen's Gambit watches one game of chess and just poof, immediately sees it on the ceiling and understands the moves. That's how I think for some of us it is with movies where we just get a fleeting glimpse of something. We're like that. That, please, I, I, I want more of that, please.
2: Yeah, pockets of escape we can't even articulate.
1: Yeah.
0: I think that makes so much sense, though, especially if he's growing up in this tiny society and he doesn't really have access to the larger world. And this is his, like, one glimpse of a glimpse into a larger world. Sure. One thing I absolutely adored about this movie is... His constant tension with his mom, where as much as he's really constantly comforted by her and she is this incredibly generous person, um, at the same time, she is someone who has sort of been maybe coarsened is a condescending word, but like she's someone who has only... Ever had to like think about like what was right in front of her. And she has this son who is constantly looking beyond her, right? And that sort of starts at the very beginning of their life. That's like how what the foundation of that. Uh, mother-son relationship is and it sort of metastasizes no pun intended by the time it gets to like the end of her life and (laughs) it's sort of ironic that the son now like seeing that he wants to basically embrace the world constantly it comes back to her world in order to sort of capture some of it. But ultimately what he wants to do is sort of like disseminate it out into like the world that is his. And she is still fighting him because she's like, stop it. Like, this is my world. Like, this is my thing. And like, you didn't want like a part of it, like when you were a kid. So like, I deeply understand like her sense of offense at like him trying to sort of like appropriate what she feels he has rejected and just that bedside conversation between the mother and the son as their older selves, I think it's just one of the most beautifully and densely written scenes in all of Amadovar's filmography. He's always been this really brilliant writer. But there's sort of like this like very... Uh, writerly maturation in that scene and it's one of those scenes that you sort of want to watch like five times in a row to try to like peel away at every layer
1: yeah uh, you know I, I think there is that that uh, that beautiful sort of push and pull where i the, that scene toward the end the, the last scene i think where they're where they're talking or one of the last ones where he says, you know, you would always say like, whose kid are you? And you didn't say it with a sense of pride. You know, Uh, I think that you can have, you know, uh, obviously everybody's experiences are different, but a lot of the best mothers that gay kids can have are the ones who defend them from the world, who protect them, who encourage their weird little obsessions and, you know, like are, are there for them and support them. And I think at the same time, though, you're right. Like if you are, if your life is nothing but hard work and like dragging the water in and, you know, uh, taking care of the house and doing other work because your husband's, you know, salary paycheck is coming and going, like it is hard for you to then later fully embrace the notion of like, you know, thanks to me, you get to be this aesthete, but now I get to look at your life as an aesthete and be like, what is this even about? I don't get it and I don't understand it and I don't particularly appreciate it you know so it it, it is there's a lot there's a lot rolled up in there and and that's another element of his world or I mean you know my my mother was always very supportive of myself but I'm sure there were moments where she was like what planet is this kid from well (laughs) and that like
2: in that final conversation that they have um which is so beautiful but so sad in a lot of ways she kind of says like i i wanted to be a part of your adult life and i wanted to understand this like she she mentions that when they're in the hospital like she mentions knowing what autofiction is and he dismisses her and she's like no i like read an interview that you did and like she cle- and she offered to like live with him in in madrid and he didn't want that because it wasn't his version of her that he like it wasn't his way and so he is having to deal with the fact that, like, he thought he always was doing right by her by kind of keeping his, like, more drug-fueled sexual life distanced from her when really she is in some ways communicating in that moment, like, I would have loved to have been witness to that even if I wouldn't have loved seeing it.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that also ties into, you know, Amadovar's... Life and career is so tied into the whole Movida Madrileña, which is the kind of post-Franco explosion of, uh, you know, uh, art, but also drugs and also, you know, sexuality and just all these different things that have been tamped down for so long by the fascists and by the Catholic Church. You know, so like in this country, we have, you know, we talk about the 60s, you know, the 60s being this thing where everything blew up and that the 60s did not really happen in Spain. It wasn't until the mid to late 70s where it even started, where people felt like, you know, there was this permission to, you know, live in a different way and not have to sort of face the wrath of the authorities. Um And so, yeah, obviously for him, it's like as as somebody who is kind of getting involved in this sort of burgeoning gay moment, or, you know, um, among many moments that's going on in Spain, that he doesn't necessarily want to do that in front of his mom, you know, and she feels excluded by that. And she can never probably fully understand why, because that was a movement. Because she's not doing heroin.
0: Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I love is that. Almodovar maybe, but definitely Salvador has this sort of inability to love someone on anyone else's terms, where he promises his mom, like, I will take care of you day and night. I'm going to take you to the village. And ultimately he can't sort of like bring himself to do it. Also, time works against him. But he presumably had, like, a lot of time beforehand to, like, fulfill her wishes. And he, as much as he loves her, as much as he finds her to be, like, an inspiration for his own work, he can't quite do, as a son, what she wants him to do as a son. And I found that so heartbreaking, too, because it sort of really speaks to, like, this tragic limitation of, like, his own version of love. I don't know. I guess, like, I feel like a lot of this, too, like, when I'm thinking about, like, my mom, where I'm always thinking, if I do this for you, like, your life will improve. But that's only, like, my interpretation of, like, what I consider to be a good life, right? And so that, like, yeah. And whenever I suggest like, "Hey, let's do this because I think it'll be fun," she's always like, "No, that's stupid. That's terrible." Or like, "Why are you wasting money?" Which is honestly like, I mean the she's one right response. <laughs> 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 and so, yeah, I think like basically all of like the mom scenes were like incredibly painful for me.
1: I think that is a challenge in parenting where like you, you, you actively want your children to have a better life than you did. And then sometimes when they have that life, you know, you sort of feel left out of it, you know, and, and even if though, even though if there's love there and there's, there's your, there's closeness, you know, the, the world that they have entered is so different from the one that you grew up in and, and have that feel comfortable in now that it's this awkward thing of like, I can't entirely follow you and i want you to come back to mine but you're but i don't want to keep you from being in yours and so that's you know that's the dilemma
2: yeah we all have these ideas of like who are who our parents are or our parents have these ideas of like who their children are and yet like can't really accept like the real version of them
0: one thing i also really love about Amadovar, um, especially when he has these director character standards for himself, is how much he loves to tease the audience with like, you know, that gossip that you heard, like maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> hmm. And I think he does this a lot with Salvador's relationship with Alberto, where they talk about this like 32 year tension that they've had well I that's mean, a great like,
2: moment when cecilia roth is like y'all haven't talked to him what like 30 years and he quickly says without thinking no 32 <laughs> <laughs> he knows specifically
0: yes uh i think that's pretty obviously like a stand-in for el cebio poncello who starred as like pablo the director in law of desire uh down to the fact that like he rehashes once again uh basically el Sebio's heroin addiction where he says like You didn't play this character correctly. Like, you said, I only cast you because you said you weren't going to do heroin between shoots, and you did it anyway. And so, like, I hate you. And the fact that, like, Almodovar is apparently still not over this and still, like, dragging this, like, three-decade-old gossip, like, into a movie (laughs) in the 21st century is some God-level pettiness, but I also love that he is inviting all of this sort of snoopiness. And even though this there's a line in the script that says something like, oh, gossip gets old or whatever. Um, he's going to pull it out anyway, because he wants you to gossip about him.
2: A gay man being a messy bitch? Who'd have thought? <laughs> what? <laughs>
1: There, there's a line in, uh, in Mark Rappaport's from the journals of Gene Seberg, where she says, never marry a writer. You never get to tell your half of the story. Uh, and so, yeah, I think if you get it, if you're in the life of, of an auteur, the auteur always gets the last word because he's going to make movie after movie about how the things went between the two of you.
0: I'm sorry, Jennifer Jason Lee.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, and in some
2: ways it's almost like, uh, there are they're never, like, it's not even just that, like, they don't get to tell their side of the story, but, like, to him, their side of the story isn't part of the story. Like, they they aren't a part of his story once they aren't, uh, like, in his life or, in his, like, in his direct vicinity. He, like, he lives so... it. It's weird how quickly Alberto falls away in this film after the beginning of it, like... We have Alberto who falls away. We have Cecilia Roth, who clearly she had a relationship with him, um, even though he has to like recognize who she is at the beginning of it. And he's like, oh, yes, of course. Um, And then he has his ex Federico, who he's like, Federico who? And then it's like, oh, wait, the last name. That's what triggers it. And so it's almost like he's kind of he has all these people in his life, and yet they aren't even there except as characters in his life.
0: I but I really like that structure where he's, you can feel the protagonist sifting through all of the emotional like debris and all of like the loose ends that he has had and just like continue digging until he gets to like that most primal loose end and of course when he's finally able to tie that back up sorry to like the labor the metaphor and then that's sort of like where you get that. Cause, that catharsis right but i do love that he has to like first go 30 years back and then sort of like 50 years back and then however long well i'm over 71 so let's say like 60 years back or whatever and i think that sort of like backward chronology um really worked for me
1: and of course the process of of self-discovery and revelation isn't complete until he can make a movie about it (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean i guess this is jumping ahead but i love that final shot so much oh, where you get like you get like a fake out ending right so like first you have sort of you have like the return of like the little boy version of salvador and his mother played by penelope cruz they're back in the train station she puts them up on sort of like this bench that essentially serves as as a pedestal and she's obviously. Taken so much care, of, like putting down the blankets and like mm. making sure he has like a chocolate sandwich to eat. Because even though they have like nothing to oh, eat, they're still, she's still going to feed him like a chocolate sandwich. And basically, like the mother and son like turn away from each other and you sort of just get like the gist of their relationship where they're so close and yet like they're back to back. And then the shot, like, Zooms out and you see that it's the making of a movie and he's done this shot several times he does it in time me up Timey me down which is like the making of a movie he does it um, he does it in bad education where Gail García bernard's character is like killed and even though you know it's a movie you get like lost in the movie and then you find out it, he was only killed his character was only killed in the movie and I mean, like, at this point, you sort of, like, almost expect the shot, but, like, in each case, it's such, like, a delightful shock.
1: <laughs> oh, um, you got me again, Pitch. Well, and because
2: <laughs> in all of the other ones, he's telegraphed that, like, that is what's happening so that we kind of get tricked into the film in spite of itself, whereas this time, he tricked all of us until the end. He And, like, I kind of appreciate that because he was willing to hold off on that rather than have to keep showing his hand over and over, which he loves to do.
1: Well, and sometimes you'll see a movie where, like, if if it's about a filmmaker, the filmmaker will have the flashback that we'll see, which is the real version. And then at the end of the film, you'll see it being restaged with different actors and what's obviously a set, whereas the other thing was really a place. But because we're back in that same train station that we saw before in the film, and and it's Penelope Cruz and the little kid that we saw before, we have no reason to think that it's anything but a continuation of a flashback we've already seen rather than the idea of, like, oh, no, no, that's... Penelope Cruz playing, you know the this guy's mother, et cetera.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about this in our Bad Education episode, but I because I think he does this too again in that movie where he basically like reveals later on in the movie that what you saw earlier that you took to be the truth was actually all of fiction. Mm. Um, and so he reveals like the truth to be an artifice and it's sort of like up to you to decide like how much of this should you take at face value versus this is like the interpretation of the person who made it.
2: One thing that struck me watching this movie is how much his reminiscences are happened by chance. And are just uh, these, like, passing inspirations that he can't even, he doesn't even really know where they came from or how they happened. Like, seeing the image of the painting that Eduardo did of him that just happened to be at a flea market in Barcelona that this guy bought and, like, posted, like, anonymously and then like all all those things are just kind of random reminiscences.
1: Yeah, the idea that Federico would just happen to wander into this theater that happened to be near the apartment that they used to share and see this show that's entirely about him, you know. uh, I I think that's very intentional. I mean, this is uh, among the many films that this has been compared to among sort of like, you know, the great auteurs. uh, This is is kind of Almodovar's Wild Strawberries. You know, uh, it, it is about somebody who is sort of, Uh, looking back at their life and you know those that's not necessarily an orderly uh, function you know in in, uh, the way that one looks back it it is always fragmented it it is set off by like oh I saw this thing on a shelf and I remember the time that we bought it at the place and the the other thing happened and and yeah you know I mean a lot of it is uh, thoroughly random but the movie poster Sabor has a strawberry in it there you go There you go. I hadn't even made that connection, but yeah. So, uh, you know, I I think it, it, it it all scans, but when you stand back and look at it, yeah, it is just this sort of collection of, of random things, but you know, uh, sometimes that, that just is sort of how it goes. And that's the artistic process. The, the Jungians can call it synchronicity, you know, or it can just be random coincidence or, you know, in a terrible Hallmark movie, they'll call it a God wink. But in any event, uh, it just, it is a thing that, that just transpires. And so, um, you know, I, I I I buy it. I get, I think the older I get, the more your memories sort of like they. You have more of them, but they're they're on the shelves a lot less tidily.
0: I do think it's interesting that like basically he's as I said earlier sifting through like the people who made him him, and I did enjoy that. Like basically, what it came down to is it's his mom, and then like two guys, one of whom he did heroin with, and the other one who. Awaken them sexually. Uh, By the way, uh, can we talk about that sexual awakening scene? Because that is...
2: Oh, of course.
0: (laughs) Something, like, I really, really... It like so much of this movie reminded me of Bad Education, including the fact that like you have this like delayed letter that like after years and years and years like finds the person that it's supposed to go to. But one of the other things that I really enjoyed about both Bad Education and this is that that pang of like first love or or like first arousal or whatever is like both so innocent and yet like definitively like erotic um i also just love the fact that like i mean like they attributed to like a sunstroke but this little boy finds this man like so hot that he like literally faints
1: (laughs) it's like stendhal syndrome
0: (laughs) Uh, what is stendhal syndrome
1: Stendhal syndrome is, it, it, it's, I think, supposed to be psychosomatic, but the idea that you are so taken with a work of art that you are dumbstruck—he's so overcome with the beauty of this this naked guy that he just that he, he 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 loses consciousness.
0: I mean, who wouldn't?
1: It's it's a lot to take in.
2: I definitely did. Um, <laughs> but I I was even struck by the intimacy of the scenes before that where he is teaching him how to where he's teaching mm-hmm. Eduardo how to write and he like places his young hand on top of Eduardo's hand. And it's this like beautiful, intimate moment that I, I, I in some ways I was definitely nervous at first about like, where is this going? Is this going to like veer into a uh, sexual assault territory? And I, I was relieved that it didn't and that it, it definitely appeared as if this young man, Eduardo was kind of feeling some sort of like attraction or affection of some sort that isn't simply
1: homosocial.
2: Yeah, e- exactly. Uh Towards this child, but also like, it, and it's kind of like a loving tribute to that as opposed to a, the, the horrors of adults taking sexual advantage of children. It's kind of a, both of their—it's in some ways both of their awakenings. It felt like because it seemed that he, the Eduardo, was kind of recognizing in himself the beauty of of
1: male intimacy.
2: Yes, and that he's he d- never even conceptualized that, and so has this kind of like he doesn't even know how to really act around this boy and doesn't understand the feelings that he is are being created by this and.
1: Yeah. yeah, cause you, you have all these conflicting things happening because like, for example, you know, he has somebody in his life who is a tutor and who is teaching him, like, you know, math and and letters and, like, access to the world. And usually your teacher is somebody who is older than you, who is, like, a role model that you respect. And he's being taught by somebody who's younger than he is, which throws that whole thing out of balance. And, you know, yeah, he's somebody who clearly is, like, you know, works with his hands and, you know, is illiterate and and, and like – you know, is very much uh, a peasant, essentially. Uh, And so, like, to be stimulated mentally in this way for the first time and to, like, allow for this closeness where, you know, he's got his hand on his, you know, yeah, I think there's a lot of different sort of conflicting feelings that rush through that. And then uh, there's also the whole weird thing about, like, and uh, this has been described in greater detail elsewhere, but basically in societies where, homosexuality is completely denied the, the possibility of existing, like men can be more intimate with each other and not feel ashamed about it because nobody can point to it and say that's gay because the idea of gay isn't even registering on anybody's mind. You know, it, it is so much a taboo and pushed away that, that you know, so the, the the challenge has been to get straight people to, straight guys to re-embrace the idea that they can touch each other occasionally in a way that isn't punching each other and that we don't have to like look at it and go, ah, you're gay, that it's just like, that's just a normal way of, you know, of, of, of men being men together, you know, and you, you do sense that same sense of intimacy when he finally gets the letter all those decades later, there is this warmth of like, I want to see you. I hope you're well, you know, thank you for, for helping me get this job where I have to use numbers now. Um, Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot that's, implied and off-screen off with that, but th- that's a really, one of the rich relationships in this film. But when you talk about the men who shaped him, I think you, you have to include Federico in that as well, obviously.
0: I think that the other reason why the relationship between the young Salvador and Eduardo is so like interesting and so poignant is because Eduardo is almost this cautionary tale, right? Like, he's an artist, he's sensitive, and yet He's sort of like
2: someone who doesn't have the opportunities who who didn't get out.
0: Yeah. And so, like, I think that's really sad Um, and like really moving and sort of one of just like another aspect of that, like, mother sacrificing so much of herself so that, like, her son can get out into the world only for the son to then sort of like feel alienated from her.
1: And the gallery guy even says, like, these are artists who didn't even know they were artists.
0: Yeah it's one of those things where like if Eduardo was born to like a mother who could read, who could like teach him how to read, or if he was born like 15 years later or something, then he could have had sure. this like completely different life.
2: I would love to also mention Federico in his conversation again because like for all that we have said the um the lost hope of Eduardo's artistry and skill. You have Federico who even though he had this like great Early well not great because it was a heroin addict but relationship with like deep like deeply important relationship with uh, Salvador he then goes on to like have a full life and he has a wife and children and he's like has a a new partner which oh that was such a sad moment when like he when um, Salvador asks him like do you have a partner and he's like yes and he's like oh well I don't have a partner and I was just like oh no I wish they could be together but of course they can't because like this guy has moved on and has has moved past this and wants them to be, wants to be friends and wants this to like relationship to have changed in a way that for all that Salvador has grown as an artist and, um, changed, he's still kind of frozen in place in a lot of ways in that, like longing for things past that are no longer there and, um, kind of wanting to like find, young love again, as opposed to like figuring out what older love could look like.
1: I think the, I think the real issue here is that he is, he is old enough and wise enough to sort of realize, look, you're going back to Buenos Aires tomorrow where you have a complete life and you're not going to leave it behind. We had this thing and this thing was everything a long time ago. Now we can be friends. We will be in each other's lives. We know how to contact each other. It, Getting this moment with you has been cathartic. It can end here. You do you know? think and
2: they'll I, be in each other's lives, though? I have a feeling that he will never call. He will never call Federico. He'll never, never go to Buenos Aires. Uh, that was all just a uh, like. Yeah, it I mean,
1: it, for the most part, it's a yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely, we'll do X, Y, Z. But you know, I mean, you never know. They, they, if he, if he make, if he gets another, if he's touring the world with El Primero Deseo, and he goes to Buenos Aires, maybe he'll go to the restaurant. I don't know. But in any event, I th- that moment where he's like, "We're not going to sleep together," didn't it? Didn't feel like it was cowardice or concerned about physical, actual physical stuff. It to me felt like I am wise enough to realize that I've gotten what I need to get out of this encounter through the conversation we've had and through this kiss, and and now this is this is exactly where it should end. This is where we leave it. This is where we re- will remember it forever. Boom at this, you know, and so that to me feels like that's that is that is uh, with somebody who is old enough and wise enough to know when to, you know, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, you
0: know, or as a storyteller, he knows where like the closure should be,
1: Mm. yeah, they where the edit comes,
2: (laughs) (laughs) right? Well, and I mean, thinking of the uh, we like we're stopping it here, we're freezing this in what it was, also calls back to the um the moment when he's in the car with mercedes and she says like you should get on google look him up see if see if you can find eduardo somewhere and he's just like well why would i do that i don't i don't want to do that
0: he has a story
2: yeah exactly like i don't if i do it, it i will be let down it will be disappointing as opposed to what he has now, which is a beautiful memory and a beautiful piece of art.
0: Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Now we've reached our closing segment in which we rank the Almodovar movies we have discussed so far, which are All About My Mother, Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, Law of Desire, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, Talk to her, Bad Education, Volvaire, and Pain and Glory. I'll go first. Uh, I'm still going to stick with All About My Mother. And then... Ooh. <laughs> All right. I'm going to do All About My Mother, Talk to Her, Pain and Glory, Women on the Verge. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, bad Education, Volvair, Law of Desire, and Tie Me Up.
2: I think my rankings are much uh, the same as yours, though we disagree on a few. But um, I've, I've had to swap some stuff around. I Pain and Glory is the top. It's it. It's top of my list. Best movie I've ever seen. Want to watch it again and again. Followed by Talk to Her, Women on the Verge, All About My Mother, Bad Education, Volver, Law of Desire, and then Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. But it's, I think, a pretty middle of the pack movie for me. Yeah. So.
0: Especially after we saw Kika.
1: And High Heels. <laughs> yes. Uh, I do hate a ranking, but let's see. Uh, okay, just off the top of my head, and ask me tomorrow and it'll be totally different. But uh yeah, I would say all about my mother still is, is the undeniable number one for me. Um, followed by You know, Women on the Verge, again, I think just because personally that was my introduction, so it's always going to be special for me. Uh, Then Talk to Her, then Pain and Glory, then Volver, then uh, Bad Education, um, Law of Desire, Tie Me Up. Yeah, and 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 I have to say that there are, you know, when you talk about the fallow period between Volved you know, and and Pain and Glory, for me there's definitely some iffy stuff between Women on the Verge and All About My Mother. But, oh, he's uh, had two fallow periods for sure. <laughs> but even but even when it but again, I think it's in that category of like even so-so Almodovar is better than a lot of people's best work. <laughs>
0: That's literally what Justin said in our bad education episode, (laughs) word for word.
1: (laughs) It's true.
0: So this is usually the point in the episode where we announce the subject of our next episode, but twist. This is actually our last official episode. Are you going to
1: reconvene when he has new movies come out? or?
0: Yeah, probably. (laughs) Dean and I have always planned on doing a couple of bonus episodes, and those are already in the works, but they likely will not be out for another three or four weeks. We've also been discussing ways to expand the podcast for a second season, but nothing is quite set in stone yet. On a personal note, this has been an amazing journey. That sounds corny as shit. I don't care. I really, truly mean it. I have not seen most of these movies in something like fifteen years, um, and so it's been an amazing blast to a go back and see all of these movies in a wholly new light, um, and b uh, watch it with someone who I knew would appreciate them as much as I do because I think we all we have this like shared love of camp and uh feelings
2: (laughs) well i'm with you on one of those (laughs) i'm just kidding i'll be honest i'm really just sad it's over i'm sad like it's
0: not really over
2: (laughs) well i i know but you know what i mean like i'm sad that like these movies are no longer going to be a part of my day-to-day life in a way that they were for the past four months and I want them to continue to be that part of my life so deeply that I don't want to make another project. I want to just do this one again, um, but better. And so imagine. <laughs> I I mean, I guess I understand where Pedro's coming from in that respect.
0: <laughs> now that we got this out of our system, so this has been a really fun journey. Um, <laughs> I set out to do a maximum of eight episodes, and I'm really glad that we stuck with us, even though we are definitely going to do bonus episodes.
2: We sure are.
0: But Daniel and I really want to thank all of our listeners uh, for coming on this journey with us. Uh, we really weren't sure uh, how many people would be interested. Um, (laughs) and it's been nice to see that more people than we thought were really interested in rediscovering Almodovar with us.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, for downloading, for, uh, engaging with us online. We really enjoy hearing from our listeners. And then I also think we're going to have to take mics with us when we go to Spain sometime in the future.
0: Until then, if you have any questions or comments, please email us at allaboutamadobar at gmail.com. Alonzo, thank you so much for being with us.
1: It was my great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: This is Ingu King.
1: This is Daniel Schrader. And I'm Alonzo Durali.
0: Adios for reals. (laughs) (laughs) Delete that. (laughs) Nope, nope.
2: That's the end. That is the end of the show. There's no better high-low combo than Almodovar and Housewives.
0: (laughs) Do you think that Almodovar enjoys the Housewives franchise Would he watch The Real Housewives of Madrid?
2: I believe I even made that claim on a previous episode of our show.
0: Oh, I don't listen to our show. (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs)